Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month on motorcycle travel. On this episode of Raw, experiences on the road that made better riders, prioritizing adventure dreams, an attempt to answer questions that average people ask Google every day, and at one point, Graham Field will attempt asphyxiation using his own motorcycle. Before we get going on that, I want to give a shout-out to some people that helped Adventure Rider Radio and Raw incredibly this month with support of $50 or more. I want to give a big shout out to Woodson Dudley, Jim Mark, Ted Zulsdorf, James Sperling, and Robert Thompson. Thank you all very much. Remember, support of $50 or more, get your name shout out on this show. But we would love your monthly support in our Patreon account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. This episode of Raw is supported in part by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations. Now, here we go. ARR Raw for May 2019 in Season 4. So here we are. We're under five minutes in, and we're actually going to start recording. This is this is super cool. Unbelievable! Mike, do the whole show without me. Graham, if you keep going, we're going to go past five minutes. We're already like we're, we're pushing four minutes forty seconds now. Oh, yeah, it would have been okay. Carry on. <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is May 2019, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal, except for the script we give Graham. And this episode of Raw is brought to you in part by FreshTracks.co.uk. UK, facilitating adventurous conversations is what I was trying to say, much like I hope we do here. (laughs) Much like I hope we do here on Raw, freshtracks.co.uk. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular esteemed Overland co-host. I'm going to start with somebody you already heard there. Of course, that is Graham Field. Graham? Hi, yes, Jim, thank you for inviting me. It's another lovely show that I hope we're going to have. It says here. Didn't I type in there about the weather? Oh, yeah, the weather is lovely. Oh, and that's very good, Graham. Thank you very much. I'm going to skip on over to Grant Johnson. Grant? Hello, how's everybody doing? I'm not enjoying the current weather. We had a lovely, lovely, lovely introduction to May, and it's gone bad and lousy and rainy and ugly again. Uh, However, it's going to be good again soon. I'm looking forward to it. I've actually been out on the bike a couple of times, so that's been good. Ah, very nice. Sam Manicom is on the road. I have no idea where he is. I'm not sure that Sam even knows where he is. Sam, are you even there? (laughs) I'm here. Hello, everybody. Um, I mean, today has been a real adventure in itself. Trying to find a motel that has got decent Wi-Fi has had me chasing around um, Flagstaff. Um, it's been an interesting exercise, but I've seen parts of Flagstaff that I probably never would have done otherwise. That's Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, and I'm in uh, week five of a six-week trip um, across the United States. And Grant was making me chuckle just then when he was talking about the weather. Because um, all but yesterday, I have had rain, um, high winds, um, heavy-duty storms, as in those ones that show up red on the radar. Um, and, yeah, it's been quite entertaining. But um, I'm here in the sun shining. Well, that's great to hear. That's good news. Now, whoever has the dinging thing, I hopefully you, you've shut that off. Okay. Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley and Brian, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks in Australia. How are you doing? 
Apart from our dingy thing, we're doing okay. Well, if you hadn't said anything, no one would have known it was you. <laughs> Everyone knows it's always us making too much noise. Um, it's lovely here. It's sunny and a bit cool, but oh, it is May, but it's, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, leading into winter and we've got the sun shining, birds are singing outside. It's a beautiful day. So a good so, day to be up in the shed. Hmm. Well, you're getting ready to, to take off now, we all understand. Uh, yeah, I'm getting ready for a, uh, a reasonable trip, uh, just doing a lap of Australia, which is, uh, I don't know, about 14,000 k's, I suppose, uh, over about five weeks, uh, meeting up with um, six friends uh, as I go around, collecting a few and and um, travelling north, of course, for the better weather, uh, up to Darwin and then cruising down the west coast of Australia, stopping at all the beaches, having a bit of a, a play in the water, um, going out to Ningaloo Reef with a bit of luck, do a bit of snorkeling, ride down to Perth, change a rear tyre and trundle back to Melbourne and then across to our beautiful Tasmania for a ride around the mountains, so, which might be a little bit wet by the time I get there, but that's okay. A bad day on a motorcycle is a better day than working. Very true. Five weeks, you're going to be gone. Yeah, yeah, five weeks um, with a fleeting visit. I think I'll make it home uh, with um, four weeks to go, so I'll have to do the washing, will I, surely, or are you going to do the washing? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll deal with that when the time comes. So how many parties are going on, Shirley, while Brian's away? Is it just on the weekends? I didn't quite get that from all well, those posts. He, he leaves Saturday and I've got my first one Saturday night. Nice. So then it's, we'll just go from there, really. Oh, you've got your girlfriends organised, your That's brother's good. coming up to see you. And there's lots of other things going to be happening. Oh, it's going to cost me a fortune, I can Saturday, see. Uh, Saturday here is our federal election. So on Saturday night, I'm going to friends to watch the election results and celebrate a girlfriend's birthday. So... I guess it's it's a it's a taxi night, not a car night or a bike night. Oh, that's a good yeah, and I've had and I've had to vote early, and I miss out on my democracy sausage. Oh. Yeah. Do you have democracy your, sausages what? in your pocket? I have booths? no idea what that means. No, but they, no not in this part of the world. <laughs> in our polling booths, we have a sausage sizzle, and it's usually run by if the polling booth is at a school, it's run by the school committee to as a fundraiser, and they're quaintly known as democracy sausages. So after you vote, you go and buy your democracy sausage and then meander home. What a cool idea! That is an interesting piece of Australian culture. <laughs> <laughs> we all here. Everyone has to vote. <laughs> yes, that's a lovely thing. Well, we um we can jump into some um some listener questions. We got a couple of listener questions here that I thought we should tackle for this one. Jim, yes. Jim, 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 Jim. Before we do, can I just say um, one thing about the trip that I've been doing across? You know, I'm, I'm um, glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you more about that, and then we sort of got sidetracked there, and, and I I got distracted because you're on a, um, a a neat trip. You're cruising around, but you're also riding a new bike which I think is interesting. Oh, I am indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm riding a 2013 F800 GS, which I've bought secondhand, of course. Um, and I'm having an absolute ball with this bike. Um, it's completely different to um, Libby, of course, and that's one of the reasons why I chose an F800. Oh, another reason is because, you know, I've got books and pop-up banners and all of the rest of it piled on the back. I still don't look as overloaded as some, but um, I have to be very careful when I'm putting the bike over on the side stand that I don't tip it. Unfortunately, I haven't done that so far. But um, no, it's been brilliant fun to ride. I hope we're going to become old friends. 
Um, it's been really good. But I've been doing presentations at um, Horizons Unlimited in Virginia and BMW dealerships as I've been traveling across. And I want to make a, a point of saying um, thank you to all of the Adventure Rider Radio of Raw listeners that have been turning up. I reckon on average about a third of the audiences have been listeners to Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. And what wonderful things these guys are saying about it. I wish, actually, I'd been making a note of everybody's names because I'd sit here and read them all out and bore everybody to tears, but um, they deserve it. Uh, but no, it's been absolutely fantastic fun um, meeting up with everybody. So thanks for heading on in. It's been good. I was going to mention about your bike because you have it all completely decked out in accessories. Well, you know, with Libby getting ready for the trip, um, I listened to what the salesman um, told me and then looked at my budget and I thought, well, actually I can make that and I can make this and I'll bodge that together. And I bought, I still bought a whole load of stuff that within six months, I'd, most of it I'd, I'd got rid of. Um, just too much weight and I wasn't using the stuff. But this time getting this bike ready, um, because I had um, six months from the stage where I'd made the arrangement to buy it to the stage that I was actually going to be picking it up, I can actually spend some time doing some research on the various forums for F800s and on Facebook groups and this sort of stuff and pick out the bits of equipment that I knew would make this bike um, that much more fun to ride. And one of the key things, for example, was, um, and I'm sure F800 riders will agree with me on this, um, the saddle is skinny. And um, when I did a test ride on one a couple of years back, it felt like I was sitting on a fence and I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to have a bike with that. So I bought a secondhand saddle for that. Um, I bought a, um, a bigger screen and um, Denali lights and um, Jesse Panniers um, and uh, Green Chili. I've got to give them a mention, being a sponsor um, of Adventure Rider Radio. They, uh, Adams um, got in touch with me and he said, Sam, you're not going to use those grotty old straps that I see in your photographs and <laughs> traveling in the UK. You can ride with um, green chili adventure straps or nothing else. And I said, well, yeah, okay, fine. I'm delighted to try them out because there's, there's so much about these straps that are good. And I thought, well, I can't say anything until I've actually tried them. And I tell you what, I've been blown away by how well and how adaptable they are. Um, the other key thing that I put on the bike was um, bash bars from Outback Motor Tech and a skid plate from them, and um, a rear luggage rack. And this combination is working really well. I mean, there are still things that I've got to do with the bike. For example, I've got to change the horn. I mean, this sounds like I've just trodden on a rodent's tail when I press the button. It really is pathetic. There's no point in pressing the button except for giving me a moment of satisfaction. <laughs> but it has been a lot of fun fitting out a bike with new equipment, um, that should be really trip enhancing. And I'm carrying a lot of stuff on this bike. So getting the, the, the luggage and um, strapping systems and racks and everything right were really important. Well, it's nice that you're enjoying your ride and you're uh, getting ready to go to Overland Expo, which will be done by the time this airs. Yes, it will. Um, I'm heading over there tomorrow. And um, yeah, I've still got a bit of work to do. They've got me doing eight sessions of presentations and um, classes and roundtables, so I'm going to be a very busy chap. But uh, I hope you still get a chance to sell some books in between times. But um, I think with all the walking I'm doing between the campsite and the various different um, locations for the presentations, I should probably lose a little bit of weight, which means that I should get a finger waggling from Birgit when I get home because she says I'm too skinny already. 
From what I understand, you're, 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 some, you're sort of like that, the energizer bunny at these shows that you just keep going and going and going. <laughs> I don't think you're going to have to worry about running out of energy. Well, I'm going down to stay with um, Al in Phoenix for a couple of days before flying home. And um, he's organized a party. I said, go get a big bloke sitting in the corner fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, jumping back to our, uh, our, our listener question bag, we've got a, a question from David Priggle, which some of you know because he's, he's written in before. He's got two questions, actually, and, and I just want to cover these, our, our questions first before we get into what we wanted to really talk about tonight here or what our main thing is to talk about tonight. Um, David uh, writes that he, he's learned to be a better rider due to his memorable experience, planned and accidental experiences that he's had um, on the bike. And he's wondering if if you guys have had accidental uh, or planned events, experiences, that, um, that sort of made you better riders. Grant? Right. Um, well, my first crash on a two-wheeled vehicle was a bicycle, crossing a wet white line at as fast as I could ride it. And I was knocked out literally, like out like a light. Um, my knees swelled up like balloons and I hurt all over and I was 14. But boy, did I learn, don't cross a white line, leaned over at full speed. It just is not a good idea when it's wet. So that was probably my first big lesson. So wow. memorable lessons, yes. Knocked out? Holy jumping. Knocked you, out. It takes a lot for you to learn a lesson. I mean, you go full in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was full tilt. <laughs> So, yeah, I've, I've had a few of those. Um, road racing. I learned that uh, I had a front brake lock on me at over 100 miles an hour and I went right over the handlebars. This is in the days of drum brakes. So I'm bouncing down the road and I discovered that the extra padding that the leather maker was going to put on for me that I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Put in extra padding on the knees and a few other spots. Two layers of leather, no armor, no foam, no padding, nothing. Two layers of leather. That was it. Um, is actually not enough at that speed. You go right through it instantaneously. So that was a bad idea. I also discovered at the same time that shorty gloves are a really bad idea. Um, I still got scars on my wrist to show for it. So a little better riding protection, a little better uh, at-gat is a good idea. Um, what else? Let me think. Oh, yes. Following too close. That's a bad thing to do. You know, you're, you really want to pass these trucks or batch of cars on a windy road and you pull up behind the car in front of you and you think, ah, I'm going to be able to pass any moment here, any moment now. And then the car in front of you suddenly swerves slightly and you find out why he swerved. There was a rock, a big, big rock. I want to say it was a foot in diameter, but it probably was about six inches in diameter. And it's right in my path. I have no chance I, I see it and I hit it almost simultaneously. Bang. So that was, and that was two up. We survived it. It was ultra scary. It was just, oh my God, we're going to go down. But we didn't. But I think if I'd hit that rock on an angle or a little bit off to one side or something, we might've gone down. But I hit it square on, went right up and over it. Susan said, what are you doing? Wow. Yeah, I've had that sort of incident only with a vehicle. It wasn't uh, on, a, on a motorcycle, but it was at night with a tire off of uh, an 18-wheeler. You know, you follow oh, too yeah. close and, and, you know, it moves over a little bit and then all of a sudden, bang, right into the, the Actually, vehicle. Actually, that was, that, 
that was something else I wanted to mention too. I've seen um, two 18-wheeler tires explode and go flying. And I've been almost, almost, but not quite hit by one. And ever since I am so far back and I watch them so close and I'm looking and thinking, yeah, okay. And then when I pass, I'm full throttle. I just go past them as quick as I can. I don't stay anywhere near them. I've seen too many chunks of road on the, or too many chunks of tire at the side of the road, little bits and pieces lying around. And when they come off, they're going really fast. Mm -hmm. And if they hit you on the bike, you're done for. This is why I really like Dave's question, the, the question he's given us here, because there's so, there is so much to learn. That following too closely is something you see a lot with riders. And, the, and I think they just don't seem to realize that when you're that close to a vehicle, you cannot see past them. You can't see what's coming up ahead. It's, it's a really dangerous spot to be in. Half the time they can't see you, especially the big trucks. If you're tucked in that close behind them, um, unless they've been watching their mirrors as you're approaching, they've got no idea you're there. But Grant, those two stories that you just told me have just given me goosebumps because both things happened to me yesterday. Um, oh, wow. I was, I'm traveling behind one of the uh, one of the trucks on Route 40 uh, on the interstate, and um, I was probably 25 yards behind him, and one of the tires just went kapow. Mm-hmm. And there was rubber flying all over the place. Fortunately, it wasn't completely rear wheel, but yeah, there were bits of rubber just winging on past me. And I was on Route 66, and I was just so taken up with watching the views of the sides, I let myself get too close to the car in front. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see um, the pothole in the asphalt. And I hammered into that, and I thought, oh, well, that's my tyre shot. Uh, um, it seems to be okay. But um, yeah, it was just a, a very timely reminder not to be a clutch. And the rubber that yeah. flies off, um, it looks so light the way it flies through the air, but boy, not. is it a heavy chunk with with mm-hmm. uh, metal in it, like with, with wire in it. It's just, it's it's really damaging. Yeah. If it hits you it's, and you're doing any kind of speed, it's flying backwards. It's not going forward. It's going backwards. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's going to hurt really, really big. Hey, Shirley, how about you? Hey, Pierre. Well, I'm not a rider, so I don't really. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, and this is this is why I asked you is because I think you've learned things being on the back of the bike with Brian. Oh yeah, well, I guess as far as um, I'm concerned, it's it's to be relaxed. If I'm not relaxed on the back, if I'm tense, it, it's just not a, a happy place to be. And um, Brian can tell if I'm not relaxed, which is a good thing. But um, things that he's done that have made me a better pinion passenger, hmm, there's been so many. Well, there, well, there have been a few. And hearing about things um, falling off, um, tyres exploding, all that sort of stuff, I hate travelling behind utes with uh, workman's stuff in it uh, and all that sort of the stuff that can fly out of the back of a ute, I just simply hate it. I either hang right back and wait my opportunity, and I'm like, Grant, get past as quick as you can. Um, one instance I had um, travelling on a freeway, you know you go over a freeway and you might have a, a curve on an over on a, a raised piece of road, I was doing that, just minding my own business, and I came around the corner and smack bang in the middle of the road was a road sign that had fallen out of the back of the ute on the road, which is metal. So if I had hit that with my wheels, I would have skidded straight across the road and over the, the barrier onto the road below. And you just got to be able to see everything when you're riding. And well, well, 
you think of memory, memorable moments on motorcycling. I, I can still remember my first ride on a motorcycle, and that was an exhilarating experience for me. And uh, I think we all learn from that. But And as you go on <laughs> um, with your motorcycling life, you learn things as you go. For example, one of my first big trips was um, riding with some mates and um, we dressed appropriately for the winter weather and it started to rain and my army overcoat got heavier and heavier and heavier <laughs> and my flying boots, which I thought were de rigueur at the time, filled up with water. So good riding gear was an essential thing as um, you go along with your with your um, motorcycling life, I suppose. But gears improved too. Oh, gears improved a lot. Your first blowout, anyone had a blowout of a tyre? Um, and um, in the old days with tubes, and I know some people still run tubes, I don't for this reason, with the with tyre running off the rim, that's exciting. You soon learn to, to, to know those early signs. Um, and another hang, hang one. Hang on a second. What, what, what early signs? I was, was going to say because what do you learn from that? Really, that's sort of a surprise. Well, any any wobble, any any noise, anything, anything like that 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 um, makes you uh, sit up and take notice. And that brings me to the next point. I was riding along uh, a country road, overtaking a truck, and I just heard a click, 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 which is unusual. You know, different sounds with your bike. Uh, pulled the clutching straight away, drifted into the side of the road, and I had a chain link which had come loose, and the the chain was just slowly pulling the the uh, joining link out, and it was on a 750 Honda, which are renowned for throwing their chains forward through the crankcase. Mm-hmm. So, and um, you know, little things like that. Learning your bike, good lights is another one. Um, Around here, of course, um, uh, with kangaroos and all the rest of it. But oh, I, I had a mate who actually uh, cut a cow in half, not being able oh. to see it in the middle of the road. And um, this trip I'm about to embark on, the last time I did it nine years ago, coming into a little place called Mount Isa, where they they have uh, Brahma bulls and all that sort of stuff that just roam across the road. We were stuck out there in the middle of the night. Um, simply because of a, uh, a mechanical breakdown on my mate, other mate's bikes. And um, I'm leading because I'm the only one with driving lights. And as I came over a hill, standing in the middle of the road was a big black Brahma bull sideways across the road, nowhere to go. So things like that you learn. You know, don't just rely on, uh, she'll be right, mate, as, which is the Australian attitude. Really think about what you're doing. So I reckon we learn a lot as you go. That's my little bit. How about you, Graham? Um, no, I haven't learned anything. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I, um, well, I, I learned not to go into rivers if you don't have to after I completely came off in Kazakhstan, submerged and everything. Um, and I did learn a bit about river crossings, but I think the I'll, I'll put a photo on the on, I'll send you a photo, Jim, for the show notes. Where I fully loaded, just went down, went in too slow, wrong direction. The current was too strong. I made every single possible mistake I could. I phones in my pockets that got soaked, and <laughs> never worked again. Um, a compact camera that got soaked and never worked again. I mean, everything I did was wrong and <laughs> I screwed it up big time. Um, but really, after I'd done a couple of big trips, 
uh, at one of the shows in the UK, a guy who'd, who'd read the books, uh, who does uh, like motorcycle training, you know, like off-road training and stuff, said to me, you're a really crap rider, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's trying to boost your ego there. Maybe uh, looking for a free book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but I'm a good writer, though. And, uh, and um, so uh, he said, look, let me give you some free tuition. And that's my favorite price. So I said, okay, then. And he took me out. Um, I went over to his place. And he's, there's some green lanes in his part of the UK. And I was on the KLR. And we were going down this little path. It was like a bridle path for horses, but motorcycles were allowed to use it as well. And the bike just spun out, wasn't going fast, nothing. He was riding behind. And the bike just spun out 180 degrees and threw me off. And uh, he came up and helped me pick the bike up. He said, I'm not exactly sure what happened there. He said, oh, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> wrong. And I said, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. So, um off we went again and did exactly the same thing again. And uh, I was having a real sense of humour failure now because I got a little bit of pride, you know. And, um, and he said, I, I really don't know what you're doing wrong. He said, what I'm doing wrong is falling off your bike. That's what I'm doing wrong. And, um, and then we did some water stuff, went through some water. But he did talk, teach me two really important lessons. And one he called the the sumo wrestler stomp. He said, if you're going to put your feet down, put your feet down. Put them down hard, heavy, and put them there to correct your balance. And, uh, and I thought that was really good. So now if I'm in an unsteady position, off-road, of course, you know, if I'm off-road on dirt and I'm, and I'm unsteady, if I put a foot down, I put it down and make sure it's doing something, making contact, balancing, correcting, and doing its thing. That was one of the lessons. And um, I can't remember what the other one was, but it was useful at the time. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure it stayed with you. I was going to mention the, the, the river crossing. Was that one of those crossings where you look at it and you think, I don't know what my approach is. I don't know what I'm doing exactly. But oh, I can no. do this. <laughs> well, well, what it was, Jim, I was with some other people. I was with some Austrians who were fully sponsored. They had a lens on their camera that was more than my budget of my entire trip. And uh, among their sponsors was Touratech, who had given them everything. They had Touratech rubber mallets to bang in their tent pegs. They had everything. <laughs> and, um, they, and so they wanted lots of photos to, uh, to, to show their sponsors to make it worth their while. And they were actually quite wussy riders and wouldn't do anything adventurous. In fact, they were well out of their depths. But that's another story. Beware of sponsorship, telling your sponsors that you're going to do something wonderful and then find that you haven't got the balls to do it and have to photograph other people doing it. So, um, I, so I saw this big river. It was a beautiful river. And I said, I'll ride through it. You can take some photos. I didn't even check the depth of the river. I mean, it was clear. You could, see it wasn't, you, you could see there wasn't obstacles. You could see it wasn't going to go up to my neck or anything. But it was a fast-flowing river. So I just went into it. And the second, the second my wheels went into it, I thought, you haven't really done this very well, have you? <laughs> <laughs> and they got spectacular photos for it. They didn't even do that. You know what? Oh. They've got, there's a sequence of about five photos of me going down, going down, going down. Yes, there's no way this is retrievable. I am going down, submerged, the bike submerged, panniers submerged, everything in the panniers soaked. It's going to be a total, uh, it's not going to be a good, it's not going to be a good situation. So, um, and then the guy with the camera stopped taking photos. 
So he hasn't got any photos of me going completely submerged coming up. The next photo is of us all, because, so then, so I'm completely submerged. There's a Swiss guy I'm riding with. He's pretty cool. He came in to help. You've got to try and lift up a bike that is now stalled, in gear, submerged, and in a fast-flowing river, and put it back (laughs) to the bank. So he came in to help me, but you need more than two people for this. And so one of the Austrians came in. We've all got our clothes on, you know, Microsoft clothes, and he's going, Quick, my feet are getting wet. <laughs> Your feet. <laughs> Hi. See, Graham, that's why you need opinion. Graham always gets me to walk across first and see how deep it is. And if I if my boots get wet, well, it's probably a little deeper than it looks. Oh, that's true. I have used it for that purpose. That's true. <laughs> Dipstick. Hey, Sam, we haven't heard from you. What about you? Uh, well, I, I'm just laughing at Graham because he describes that story so wonderfully, doesn't he? Yeah. I think if I did if I did have a pillion, Shirley, any pillion with an ounce of common sense would have said, don't go in that river. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what Susan would I say. I guess that's something that everyone should take on a motorcycle trip is an ounce of common sense. Yeah. <laughs> it comes in very handy. But, but to be honest, I mean, although there, there was a lot of losses um, from that uh, total submersion, like I say, two phones and a camera were, were killed and a bunch of other stuff. But everything happens for a reason, apart from pure bloody stupidity. After that, I only had my SLR camera, so every photo from that point onwards was a far higher quality photo than my little compact one had done. And also, that photo has really done the rounds, and it's it's really paid off. So yeah, it was an idiotic mistake, but I've still I've, I've milked it and milked it, and uh, it's it, it's come right in the end. And uh, I am far more careful with river crossings. And don't cross a river you don't have to. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, good plan. That one, that's the best plan. No, that has a silver lining. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember seeing that picture of you going down in the river and I think, what is he doing riding in some water that deep? Yeah, I, I wondered where <laughs> it came uh-huh. from. Now I know the story. <laughs> Did you have a tire on the back as well, Graham? Yeah, as well yeah, as yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen that photo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll post that in the show notes. You can, you can find it in the show notes for this episode. Sam. What about you? I know you've got plenty. Oh, yeah, just because I'm a disaster magnet. Thanks, I didn't Jim. say that. I just said I know you have plenty. <laughs> you insinuated it. <laughs> Maybe a bit. Yeah. Do you know, I think the worst thing about surviving mistakes is taking the time out to analyze what went wrong. Um, mm. And But uh, I mean, one of the things that I've learned is um, if it looks too good to be true, then it probably is when you're riding and there was a section of roads in Kenya between um, the town of Marzabit and Isiolo and this road um, all of the locals were saying to us oh it's absolutely fine you won't have a problem especially after yesterday and the day before was um, just full bore mud and big potholes and it it really was one of those nightmare dirt roads Um, fine when you're on a lightweight trail bike probably but when you're on a fully loaded BMW and you've still got um, too many pairs of socks on board um, it's not funny um, but this next day, the sun was out and the locals were saying to us, it's a beautiful road. You're going to have no problem with it at all. And so Mike and Sally and I had a, a bit of a lay in and um, recovered from the previous day. We were chipping off pottery from the engines on the bikes because we'd been so knackered when we went to bed. We didn't even clean the bikes. 
when we woke up in the morning, the heat had dried all the mud on. And you, we were literally using hammers and cold steel chisels and just breaking off these big chunks off the fins. Um, that was quite entertaining to see that happen. Um, but anyway, we, we headed out on this road and it was a beautiful day. Acacia trees off to the side um, and it was hard packed gravel to begin with. And we were just thinking, well, what a holiday this is. And then the corrugation started. And the corrugations just went on and on and got worse and worse. And I'd never ridden corrugations before. Um, but I'd read, you know, when you're riding coronation, corrugations, you open the throttle and skip across the top. Because if you go slowly, then you rattle everything to pieces. And so I was trying desperately hard to do this and to do that skipping bit. But I was still vibrating everything. And I really was not having any fun. And then um, I saw this long, straight, smooth section down the side of the road. And I thought, oh, fantastic. A few minutes of holiday from the corrugations. Yeah, well, it was soft sand, wasn't it? I don't think I made it more than about five yards, but you're all sinking and just going wallop down on the side. Um, so, yeah, it's too good to be true, it probably. But I think a lot of the, the lessons that I've learned have been um, due to the, the generosity um, and knowledge of other motorcyclists. Um, when I was starting off um, the trip in Africa and riding with Mike and Sally, Mike was a hugely experienced motocross rider. And, you know, there's me with three months experience. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was just getting on with it. But, um, we were about to start riding through um, into Sudan and um, we were carrying extra fuel and extra water and extra food because we were planning to ride across the Sahara. Um and Mike, being Mike, walked around my bike and he just tutted and um, very quietly said to me, Sam, I don't think you, um, you increased your, um, your suspension on the, on the rear shock. And he was right. I hadn't even thought about doing that. And if he hadn't told me that, well, what a mess I would have made of the, the suspension and so many other lateral things. Um, I think making assumptions is a dangerous thing to do when you're riding a motorcycle. The the 17 bone fracture accident that I had crossing the desert in Namibia was a perfect example of that, wasn't it? You know, you look in your mirror um, and you see a tiny little black dot, but with a big cone of dust. And I just assumed he was going to be like everybody else that you meet on a dirt track in the desert. People slow down because of the dust or they want to just be sociable. They haven't seen anybody for hours. Um but this guy didn't, and my assumption meant that I didn't see the hole in the road, and that's what I rode straight into. Work up four days later. Um, I just work so hard at not assuming things now. Um, and I think I'm a better rider because of it. By the way, it was really nice. To, um, I met David at um, Oklahoma City BMW. It's really good oh, um, nice. to get a chance to shake him by the hand. Yeah, no, he's a very nice guy. So, David, thanks for sending in the question. Well, he has one more question with this. It's um, he figures that uh, he's he's got a load of places that he wants to ride. By by the way, we had Dave Priggle on Adventure Rider Radio. Um, he had bought a KLR originally. Uh, he wanted to start to ride. This isn't that long ago. He got in an accident. Um, I believe his wife is a nurse. I can't quite remember the fully, but there's quite a story there. We actually got the both of them on because his wife did not want him to ride again after this accident and he hurt himself. And um, so there was a debate and we got her on to talk um, on the show about her opinion of, uh, of what was going on. And there's sort of debate between the two of them. And 
now, I guess it's probably been a, a couple of years later, um, David's still riding. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's he's riding, he's got other bikes now. And it's sort of, um, I guess he's expanding into his uh, exploration with motorcycles. His wife's opinion hasn't changed much on it. But if anybody's interested, you just go back uh, on our on our website, really, and just find the little search button on the right-hand side and search for Dave Priggle. And you'll find that episode come up because that's pretty interesting to listen to. It was a good, uh, it was a good piece. His second question was about, um, he says he has all kinds of places that he wants to ride, but he figures he, he's going to have to live three hundred years to enjoy them all and what he's wondering is what you guys do for prioritizing your trips uh, or your destinations you know figuring out obviously everybody wants to go everywhere but how do you narrow it down how do you figure out what you really want to do or what's most important to you um the um the first thing is you can't see everything brian keeps telling me that i i try and argue against it, but you really can't see everything. And we've been lucky with um, our main trips. We've planned to go from A to B and then we work out what are the um, really cool roads in that area and what are the interesting places to see and try and fit as much in that way. But we still haven't um, seen Central Africa or North Africa and um, – that's two big great desires in our life to do that and whether we ever will on a bike or in a car or anyway, we're just not sure. So um, you just have to pick the eyes out of it, I guess. Is that the – do you understand that expression and just work out which is the, the ones that really mean the most to you and do it that way? What's holding you back from the Africa trip? Um, well, Egypt, we were going to go to Egypt. Um, we just returned from Japan Jim, and uh, instead of going to Japan, we were going to go to Egypt, and then they blew up a tourist bus, and we kind of thought, well, if we're going to be in a bus, because we'd be doing it, um, and not with the motorcycle, but doing it as a normal tourist, um, we just kind of thought maybe it was a bit too risky. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the harder those roads get, too. Mm, you mean just the, the uh, because they're so tough to ride? Yeah. Yep. Brian's shrugging his shoulders, but yeah, I think a lot of them. Um, for me, a lot, of, a lot of roads start to get um, tougher as we get older, or I get older. Brian doesn't seem to. He's a bit of a Peter Pan about him, I guess, in a way. Um, and certainly, Egypt just fluctuates between reasonably dangerous to incredibly dangerous, depending on who's blowing what up at the moment. And it's. Um, I'm hoping it settles down a little bit, and we can get over there. Yeah, because the reason I ask that is because it's not just also what you want to do. It's it's is it doable, right? I mean, you know, you, you've mentioned two things in there: safety and and even just age. As you start to, as we all age, you know, we, we start to feel a little differently about what we sleep on and how tough things are. And when we did when we did our last big trip, Jim, when we were going through um, Tajikistan, for the first time ever, we turned back because we'd been told by so many riders at, that it were coming the other way that the road was getting less and less um, navigable. The rivers were high um, and becoming, you know, the, the we met an Italian bunch who'd taken days to, to physically manhandle their bikes across a river and we were two up on, on a big heavy bike. And after, I think, our, our third drop or fourth drop in a matter of a couple of kilometers it just it was just ridiculous so you've got to see good sense has to take over 
So we turned back and, and went back to Dushanbe and, and just missed out on a small part of Tajikistan. Yeah, I mean, that's overlanding, isn't it? And it, it, people sometimes um, plan their routes and they try and stick to them like tram lines. And one of the beauties of overlanding is using your common sense and talking to people that are coming towards you and adapting your plans according to what's going on. And inevitably, you yeah. end up seeing or getting involved in something that's just fascinating that you would never have seen otherwise. Hey. You have to be well, I mean, serendipity. Um, you never know what's going to come do. up. You do, and we um, we went back to the um, guest house we'd stayed in the night before, and the man was so concerned that we'd had an accident and we'd come back. He wanted to get doctors in or take us to the hospital, and he couldn't have been kinder and and more concerned for two people he'd met for a, a matter of hours the night before. So yeah, you you see the the really um, the good side of people when things like that happen. Sure, yeah, I hope yeah. you can do. Um, um, Africa, because um, it is just drop dead gorgeous. It's it's a fascinating continent, and I think um, we hear an awful lot more hype about what goes on in Egypt than um, than is really going on in Egypt. And there tend to be hot spots, and you can steer clear of those hot spots. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, there are times when things have gone gone well and truly pear shaped. And as far as the road conditions are concerned. Um, on the east side of Africa, I think there's now only about 250 miles of um, gravel that you have to ride. And the rest of the time you can stay on asphalt or you can choose to go off onto good graded gravel roads. So it's that much more possible now. Yeah, it's gotten a lot better. It's, it's not impossible and it's not on our we're never going to do it list, but... Um, it's something we haven't done yet. And we have done Southern Africa. We've been um, through up to, up, up to Victoria Falls and back, which yeah. was rather cool. We saw some nice uh, nice scenery, good roads, interesting animals. Um, yeah. yeah. Did we you get stuck into the Borovos? No. Oh, um, those sausages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're actually having First, sausages yeah. for dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we spent nine months in Africa on our trip, and it wasn't long enough. We would have liked to spend a lot more. We spent uh, probably another couple of months since going back to South Africa for the travelers meeting there, which is always a, a spectacular, amazing event. Um, and one of the when people ask us where would you really like to go again, and ninety nine percent of the time they'll answer simultaneously Africa. Yeah. Got to go back. We got to spend more time there. Um, with any luck. We're not sure, but with any luck, we'll be in uh, South Africa this winter or this November for the Horizons Unlimited South Africa Travelers Meeting at Potchefstroom. Hmm. And the, I guess you'll, trying, trying. You'll, you'll plan some extra time for a ride at that point? Oh, absolutely. We yeah. go there for the event, and then our host, uh, Kobus Huri, who's an absolutely amazing host, he uh, organizes a week-long ride after the event. He organizes a bike for us, another four or five people to go along. And we have a wonderful trip. It's just absolutely amazing. Everything where you, everywhere we go there, the roads are so good. It's beautiful. Um, the prices are amazing. Uh, I think you go into a place that's like the keg or you know, a, a proper good sit-down meal. And instead of being 80 or $90 like it is here, it's like 10 bucks. You know, it's, it's amazing. And the food's wonderful. Everybody's very friendly and accommodating. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough. It's great. Sounds like a movie star tour. 
it feels like, and I can tell you, you know, it's all organized. <laughs> we, we arrive, we're picked up at the airport. <laughs> it's just great. How about you, Graham? Prioritizing. Um, well, two things, really. One is you might hear someone who's just come back from somewhere and enthuses about it and all those things that they say really gets you going and think, oh, that sounds great. That's exactly what I want to do. And I think that generally happens with, with, with when you're traveling is you meet someone who's just come from somewhere and uh, and they tell you about it. You think, oh, that sounds great. And that's, I think, what the, the perpetual motion of travel is you keep hearing about the next place, the next place, the next place. Um, so that's one thing that, that sort of choose, which uh, wh- where I choose my next destination. But ultimately, I think because I came from the south east of England, which is a very overcrowded part of the planet, I like open space. I like to have a 360 degree view that hasn't changed in 2000 years with no sign of human interaction, no sign of of, of, of houses, telegraph poles, wires, nothing. And that's the thing that really does it for me. That's why I like Kazakhstan and Mongolia. That's why I like to go out to sort of Far Eastern Turkey and stuff like that. So I, and and as a solo traveler, they're the things I really enjoy is absolute desolation and the the deserts of of, of Mexico and, and Southern Texas. So that's the thing that I really enjoy and that I really like. So you know, everybody has their, has their different priorities and the things that they like. A couple of days ago, uh, me and my girlfriend went to Sofia. Uh, we had to pick up my mum from the airport and we stayed overnight and made a bit of a trip out of it. And uh, we we feel like we're wearing wellies. We're like two country people in the big city. And we're just wandering around wide-eyed at the city breed of people. And and uh, and, all, and there's just so much visual stimulation. And it's exciting for two days, but I want the complete opposite. I want the stimulation of pure nature, of untouched terrain. and And that's generally what I head for. So that's what I always prioritize. Yeah, I just wanted to pop in something because I didn't really talk about what my, what, um, what, uh, how I prioritize. And I think what for me it is, is very often I'll see a mention of a country or somebody's been somewhere and I go, oh yeah, that's cool. I like that. And a country keeps popping up in my head. Mongolia is on, it keeps popping up for me. And I really want to go to Mongolia. I've never been there. And uh, so for me, it's, it's what keeps reminding me, what keeps jumping out at me? What do I keep noticing? And which ones do I think, oh, that would be good? Or which ones are like, nah, not interested? And you don't really think of it, you know, maybe deliberately like that, but there's a certain perk of, ooh, interesting. Or, nah. So, Did you see, Grant, on the Horizons Unlimited Facebook page, it was just uh, the other day, uh, a new member had written, has anybody been to Mongolia on a motorbike? <laughs> <laughs> I only saw it because several people tagged me in the post, and it was a long post, and a, a cynical friend of mine wrote, yeah, everyone and his mum has been. And so I wrote, yeah, my mum's been. <laughs> <laughs> That's cruel. You can't help it if you don't know. Yes. No, yeah. of course not. Well, we, we get this a lot. You know, people, I mean, it, it's in this day and age, you think, how can it possibly be? But there are some people who every once in a while come up and say, has anybody ridden around the world on a small motorcycle? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. It's been done a couple of times. And at the end, though, the, the only question that is, is a dumb question is the one that doesn't get asked. Hey. Yes. Yeah. And everybody, we all have to learn. You know, we, we all started from zero. So. 
Yeah. It's easy to be smug and, uh, and that, but actually that's why you go Horizons Unlimited to find stuff out. There's no point in being condescending about it. You, we, no. we, we're there to help each other out, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I'm we always, all remember. We, we all remember when we were beginners, yes. <laughs> Do we ever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I really hate the word newbie even. A newbie or noob to me condescending. I mean, we were all newbies. We were all beginners. We all didn't know. And we didn't know the extent of what we didn't know. Um, and the only way you find out is by doing some reading, doing a little research and asking a few good questions. So, Thank God there are newbies because if there weren't, then that would all die out, wouldn't it? That's true. That's very true. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you can always learn something and oh, nobody yeah. knows everything yeah. despite okay. what some people think yeah no and i always think that that when you when you get into something and you think you know everything that's when you know nothing it's only when you realize how little you know that you're actually starting to get a view of the lay of the land you're starting to understand this is a lot bigger than what i thought and i think everything's like that i can Sorry, keep Brian. learning the same thing every week <laughs> <laughs> groundhog day huh <laughs> except river crossings hey Graham. <laughs> some lessons stick see <laughs> but anyway I wanted to jump back to Sam because Sam you didn't talk about how you prioritize no I didn't but just following on from what we were saying um, one of my favorite all time quotes is what he didn't know would fill a library that anyone would be proud of mm. it makes yeah. sense doesn't it mm-hmm. right. I, I think for me planning a, um, where I'm going to go on a trip um, depends on um, a series of things that how much time have I got? Do I have a month, six months, a year that I can escape to the road? That's going to dramatically affect where I'm going to want to go to. And it's going to affect um, the type of trip. Am I going to fly to a place and rent a bike when I'm going to be there? Or am I going to be able to take my own bike? Um, the next thing is, um, what's the political situation? We were just talking about that um, with Shirley. Um, political situations in countries make a big difference to whether you're going to be able to get there. Of course, um, how much money have I got available? There is no point in me planning a great big long trip to somewhere absolutely fantastic that um, is on my really want to ride list if I haven't got enough money to be able to do it properly. Um, weather patterns, of course, also make a difference. You know, if you've got a shorter amount of time, well, you don't want to be riding across the Sahara in the middle of the, um, of the summer, do you? Um, it always fits in with um, what points of interest are there that I want to see. And I know you guys make jokes about me not doing any research, but I do like to do some research and I do like to have a look at um, the things that are, are possible to see along the way. And the more things that um, tick boxes for me, the more I'm inclined to go um, and see those things. But, you know, sometimes it just comes down to what place has the strongest itch. Mm-hmm. Same thing as I'm thinking as mine with Whatever keeps popping up, whatever keeps bubbling to the surface is the one. Um, The other one that I had was always interesting when we were especially living in the UK and in Singapore. Interestingly, it was the same thing. Um, If we see a cheap flight offered to somewhere, oh, look, wow, we can go for this much. It's Mm. so cheap. What can you do? And. what, well, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, so I mean, cheap. What, what you can can't you do with that go. flight? So you got a cheap flight somewhere. What can you do with that? Where can you go? Sure. You make it work. Mm-hmm. Find something interesting to do. Makes sense. Well, great questions. Two great questions from uh, Dave Priggle. Thank you very much, Dave. And um, moving on to the just a, one other one by Dustin Richardson. 
Um, it's about writing, actually. So, I mean, he's, he's really directing it towards the, the writers in the group, which is most. Um, most of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wants to know um, when you know you're going to write about a trip. And he says that he knows Graham keeps a daily journal regardless. But um, when do you know it's becoming a story that you want to share as opposed to a bunch of stuff that just happened? And, and in this question, he also says... Is the journey to point B enough of a narrative to drive the story on its own? Can you rely on that? Or do you need something else to happen internally or externally to make the story more dynamic? Um, and he's wondering, um, you know, sort of what process you use for it. Also, a side question, just to add even more to this, and I hope we can keep track of this. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you refuse to let the facts get in the way of a good story? And I, and I think that's, of course. that's a really, really good, really point. good <laughs> questions. Can, can I go first? Yeah. Right. Well, firstly, when I did the first book, The Search of Green Grass, a spectacular trip, was very enthusiastic about it, wrote the book. The book was, uh, was to be very popular. So I thought, right, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do another trip and I'm going to write another book, which is completely the wrong reason to go on a trip. And consequently, it went completely bloody wrong. I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I wasn't enjoying it. And uh, by the time I got to the Caspian Sea on the eastern side of Azerbaijan, I just pulled the plug, sod it. It's not going to be a book. It's not even going to be a trip. The whole thing is disaster. And I'm going to turn around. And the second I turned around, everything got better. And uh, it wasn't a failure at all. The failure was the reasons I was trying to do the trip. And the second I turned around, it was great. And so when I did get back, I thought, well, maybe I can write about this because not every trip is a success. And that's why it's Eureka with a U because it was a U-turn that did it. So, uh, and again, like people like the book because they're like, oh, it's okay to fail. It's okay not to reach your destination. So, I think to leave thinking it's going to be an adventure or a book or something spectacular, it's wrong. You're going to go see what happens. Um, and yes, I do keep a diary and I have done for over 30 years now. Every single day of my life, I write about it. And now I've considered this question and I thought about being modest, but I'm not going to be modest. I'm going to have a little rant. Um, I think I'm quite good at writing because I've been doing it for 30 years. The trick is to find something in your day to write about that's interesting. And every day, no matter how bland, has something, whether it's actions and events, whether it's thoughts, whether it's reflective, whatever it is. I think after a while, you learn to find something to write about. And the thing that really pisses me off are people who publish their blogs or whatever. They are not writers. And consequently, they dilute the, in this case, the adventure motorcycle publication market, because there is some absolute dross out there, which is a waste of paper. And it annoys the hell out of me. I'm not the best, not by a long way, but I am good. And it annoys me when there is utter rubbish out there, when people's imaginations are bigger than their trips. And they do let a story go. And there is no fact. And we know that because we can see on Facebook, there is no correspondence between the trip they did and the book they write. And that annoys me. If you want to do fiction, fine, do fiction. But the one reoccurring thing that comes up in my reviews is honest, honest, honest. And I'm an honest writer and I think I'm quite a good writer. And that's my rant. <laughs> mm. 
I, I like that. <laughs> I, I think that's really good. And I, I was just going to mention Graham because you we've t- we've had you on Adventure Ride Radio and talk about writing your diaries. I know we pulled had you pull out a diary and, and read it randomly, which was good fun. Thirty years is a long time to be writing, and, and I did mention to you that every now and then I, I have diaries that I've went through the years and I've kept little notes and it's so cool to go back to them and read because it takes me back to that moment. I can remember things like it was yesterday that I never would have remembered otherwise. Somewhat mundane things, but still um, very interesting. Well, for the past uh, probably 45 days now, I've managed, I'm not saying I'm going to be able to keep doing it, but I've managed for the past 45 days, inspired by you, to write a, uh, a passage from every day that goes by. Now, I'm not a writer, but I just put down the, the like the highlights of the day. And and again, it gives me that sort of that, um, well, I don't know, I guess a narrative of my life, which maybe that's kind of boring, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> but, but at least I can go back it's, days and I can see stuff that I've done. And it's stuff that I forget, like even like that I would otherwise forget, even just a little ride that I that I do on a day and I have some sort of little experience, uh, even if it's mundane, but it's, it's good fun. So anyway, that's, that's inspired by you, Graham. I'll see if I can keep it up. Oh, thank you. And also, don't you find that, now you've done it twice. You had the event and then you've written about the event. So it's embedded in your mind a little more. I think it improves your memory and your recall. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, and sometimes I have to think about like what, what I've, a couple of times I've, I've missed it that day and I've had to write it the next day and I have to sit down and really think about it, <laughs> about what I did. You know, what, what was I did and, and where did I go? And, you know, what was the sort of the sequence of events? Um, but it's a good exercise for me. I, I find it, I mean, if, you know, if, if a life is worth living, it's worth recording. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree it, with you guys. I also write a journal, um, uh, particularly when I'm traveling, because you're on intake overload every day, aren't you? And yeah, like you just said, what do you really remember what you did a couple of weeks before? And the stuff that you're doing on a journey, um, be it a one-day journey or a one-year journey, um, it's it's all got tremendous value. And what a waste for, for those things to be um, lost because you are on intake overload it's almost like you know not only have you um, just had that one major day but you're rolling straight into the next one and jim your style um when i'm incredibly busy um because there's just so much happening sometimes i don't feel that i've got the time because i'm too knackered and i just need to go to bed um so but what i will do is i'll write down 20 key words like um dodgy petrol station um white sand beach um, policeman who sucked, what, whatever. Um, and all of those just key phrases just bring so many of the memories back into my mind. But the other thing that I find about writing a, a journal at the end of the day is that by sitting down and thinking about the things that have happened during the day, quite often I'm remembering things that my mind hadn't focused on because I'm dealing with a border crossing, for example. Yet when I'm thinking about the day, I can um, the thoughts come back about the little old lady who was begging by the side of the road and what she was selling and how she was being treated by the people just because I've sat down and I've thought about that moment. So I think writing a journal has an incredible value. We always write a, a journal. But when you think about it, in the old days, people used to do a day diary on things that happened. My grandmother passed away many years ago but she was a prolific writer on her travels. And uh, recently we got hold of some of the stuff that she had and I just sat there and read through some of her uh, moments, her day diaries of her travels. We're no different, but that's what we, we're doing and, and uh, we're doing it for our, 
the, the generations that follow in our family. They'll be able to see what their crazy grandparents, great-great-grandparents or whatever it is did riding a motorcycle around the world. To me, that's just as important as writing a book, really, when you think about it. Yeah, no, I, I think, and that's partly why I want to do it as well, because I want all my diaries sort of to be left behind, because my my um, ancestors, I, I know nothing about them, and we all know some of their names, but that's about it. I don't know if anyone's going to be interested, but I think they would be somewhat interested. I know I'd be interested in picking up a diary from 100 years ago or something like that and, and read through somebody's life. I think it's a it's a great thing. And Sam, your keywords thing, I think is beautiful. That's a suggestion I'm, I'm going to use for sure. Thank you. No, you're welcome. You know, Birgit wrote her, German, her diary in German, um, and that was in part so that I couldn't read it. And she's, she's made me promise. <laughs> that. That's good. She's maybe she's maybe promised that if she dies before me, that I burn her journals before anybody else can read them. <laughs> I'm sure you're not taking up German lessons, Sam. Yeah. Be quiet. <laughs> I think you can scan the sheet and, and put it on Google and it'll translate it, right? <laughs> oh, now there's a thought. Oh, no. I hope Birgit listens listen to the show. And um, just going back to what Graham was saying about people publishing blogs, and there are so many people who publish stuff, and now with the world of um, self-publishing, there's a lot of stuff out there which is absolute dross, because it hasn't had a decent red pen put through it. And while, you know, we, we keep our diaries and, um, you know, Graham and Sam take their journals and you, you use them to write your book, there are days on the road where it is so deadly boring that you don't bother putting it in the book you, because, you know, you, you don't need to write about every day in your book. So, you know, you need to edit it down and make it something that other people will be interested in reading. And that doesn't mean concocting stories. It just means taking out the stuff that's just deadly, dull, boring that yeah, people don't right. need to read about. And also, if you if you published every word you wrote in your diary, you'd be That's looking boring. at 100,000 words. No one's going to pick it up and read it. It's going to be garbage. Sorry, well, well, mine's under 50,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, when you when, uh, when you t- talked about honesty, Graham, that one thing that really gets under my skin is we had someone that said, oh, yeah, I want to write a book on uh, travelling a certain way, and I'm going to get your book on those travels. Oh, yes, to refresh my memory oh, was the quote. Mm-hmm. One of the things that annoys me, and there's three questions that annoy me at shows, but one of the, the biggest one, number one, is um, so who wrote the book for you? <laughs> <laughs> People always say to me, so you wrote it and, and you just wrote Brian's stuff as well. No. Come no. <laughs> on, Graham, what are the other two questions? Um, I think that I, 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 won't, I won't do it because, you know, as you say, Sam, there is no wrong question. So yeah. um, just because they annoy me doesn't mean they're wrong questions. But to think that I, it's it's my it's thing, but to, it's the biggest insult to me how I stand here uh, behind this table with these books on my on display with my name on them, and because I'm proud of them because I have a product that I can stand behind and I'm happy to sell to the public. Um, I am not a fraud. They are not ghost written. They, I, it's my product, and it's bloody good. And how dare you say 
who wrote it for you. <laughs> now, there are there are people, though, Graham, that make a very comfortable living out of ghostwriting, and there's an Australian author called Michael Robotham who's now well-published in the UK and the US. Uh, he's a crime writer, and he began his life as a journo and moved from journalism into ghostwriting, and he said there are a few... Uh, he, he does declare some of the people that he's ghostwritten for, but he says a few who claim every word as their own and the contractual arrangement he had was that he can never reveal that he wrote their books. So mm -hmm. there are some out there and they would be very high-profile um, high people. Not that you're not high-profile, Graham. I don't want you. I didn't well, want that to be another question I don't like is um, – I'll buy a book and help finance your next trip. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We lie down and, and, and pound the carpet with laughter when people say that. Hilarious. That's so funny. But the, the first book I ever wrote, well, it never came to fruition, but I spent an awful lot of time of it, was as a ghostwriter. I was a friend of mine in California who, a very, very long story, but basically she was imprisoned for life. And... Uh, I visit her in prison and was going to write her story because I'd known her for 20 years and would go and with a voice recorder and we talk and we talk and we talk and then I would write that down. And the easiest parts of that book to write were the parts in that 20 year span where I had had a walk on part in her life where I knew exactly what was happening because I was there and I was writing it from my point of view. And although the book never came to fruition, because if you're going to ghostwrite someone's story, they have got to be as enthusiastic to get to that last sentence as you are. And if they're not prepared to put in the effort, you can't do it. So it all failed. However, I realised that if the easiest part is the part where I was involved in it, then it's a lot easier to write about me and what I did than someone else and what they did. <laughs> yeah. Ghostwriting yeah, is really difficult. Yeah, I've been asked to ghostwrite two books and... I, I thought long and hard about it because, hey, it's something new. And trying new things, that's, that's great. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, nah, I, I, I'm just not good enough writer to be able to do it. Um, I couldn't get all of those senses coming alive when I'm describing somebody else's situation. Um, one of the things Dustin asked was um, about having let facts get in the way of a story. Um, and like Graham said, no, but if it didn't happen, it isn't real. Um, but I think that, as Shirley said, there are sometimes there are things that um, just putting in all of the facts dilute the story so much that there's no emphasis left. So not putting in all of the facts, maybe that's not what Dustin's asking, but um, I certainly think that that works better. Um, from the rings. I mean, I've got a situation in my mind from Pakistan, and I've been chasing um, to get a, a visa for Iran in India um, for two months. And my visa for India, um, well, they've already extended it once and they won't do it again. Um, so I have to leave and go to Pakistan. Um, and I've been told by the Iranian embassy in Delhi, go to the embassy in Lahore. So I turn up there um, in a wide eyed and just sucking it all in because. Um, Lahore is quite a spectacular place. But, you know, I'm, I'm daunted by the task because when I start trying to hunt for the Iranian embassy, I can't find it. It's not at the address that the books say it's at. Well, I'm wandering around on one of the streets one day and um, this chap came over to me, Pakistani guy, um, and he stopped and he said, I saw you at the hotel. I see you camping on the grass in the hotel. Um, what are you doing? So I just told him and he said, you come with me. 
I'll show you. And we spent the rest of the day with him getting just as frustrated as I was because we were going from one supposed place to the next and the offices were closed, the office never exists, it wasn't there in the first place, um, it had moved to somewhere else, etc., etc. Now, I tell that story in the book, but I tell it in about a paragraph. If I had told it in its full entirety, my goodness, people would have been yawning. Um, there just wasn't enough interesting stuff amongst those facts to make the story work. Yeah, and, and part of Dustin's question is, is the journey to point B enough of a narrative to drive the story? And, um, you know, a story, there, there's this thing called a story arc, you know, and as I, I know you guys, everybody knows this. Um, but if there isn't something to overcome in the story, if there isn't something to learn, something for the, the whoever is the, the person in the story or the, you know, the protagonist in the story, if there's not something for them to overcome, there isn't a story. It, it's just an anecdote. And, and that's going to bore people to tears. So, you know, what he was asking, can you rely on just your travel? Like, are you guys able to, are you able to dig enough out of your, trip to point B. In other words, let's say you were, let's take any trip, just a hypothetical one. If you guys were going to go on a trip, a short trip somewhere, would you be able to draw something out of that trip to make it a story? Or is it going to have, take a bit of happenstance for you to get a flat tire, bump into the right person, see something spectacular to make it a, a proper story? For me, the answer is not always. Sometimes I just have a jolly nice time and that's it. Boring, but fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, really, like as far as as far as the story goes, it'd be boring. Yeah, for me, it was great. But the key with any writing, I think, is it may be fascinating and interesting to me, but is it going to be of interest to other people? Yeah. And when Shirley mentioned about a red pen, that's one of the things that a good editor does. And they guide you, don't they? They yeah. they say to you, um, well, okay, yeah, this is this is interesting, nicely described, but actually, is somebody else going to be interested in reading about that? And that is agony when the editor says, oh, puts <laughs> superfluous. You don't need that. You've said it already. So I agonised for ages over that paragraph and you're pulling it out. It's, it's tough. <laughs> or what's worse when they say, that chapter, hmm, maybe just drop two-thirds of it and just <laughs> knock the rest of it and, and tag it into the chapter before yeah. you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you, Dustin Richardson, for that question. That mm. was really good. And uh, he does say that he loves the show and, and thanks for all of all of what we do here. Loves reading the books, loves hearing the stories in the show. Uh, he wants a special shout out to Sam. Great meeting you in Virginia. I guess you know what that means. And Graham, he's got Absolutely. the t-shirt. Thanks for the stickers. <laughs> got the book, got the t-shirt, the stickers. Yeah, there, yeah. And two <laughs> definitions. Can, for can I... Can I just give um, Dustin a shout out um, for a second, please? Because um, I met him at Frontline Eurosports um, in um, Roanoke in Virginia. And this guy had driven five hours in a storm to get there. And this was Red Storm, Typhoon Warnings, the whole bang shooting match. And he still made the effort to go all the way down. Top guy. Um, and people, if people link up with him on Facebook, they'll see he's some... Um, He's really out there and having a go at stuff. He's he's such an enthusiastic guy to be around. I've really enjoyed meeting him. I want to give um, two definitions. One was Utes that Brian said several times there. Utes being a pickup truck, right, Brian? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no. pickup truck for you guys over there. 
No, it's Life good to get, to get more cultured for all of us, as, as I said earlier, with your other, your sausage fest thing when you're voting. <laughs> <laughs> democracy sausage, Jim. Whatever, whatever. Democracy sausage. And the other one was dross. I, I think, Graham, you were the first to say it, and, and then I think Shirley said it again, dross meaning crap, right? Yeah, rubbish. rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Yeah, yeah absolute rubbish. Yeah. Rubbish meaning crap. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Jim, stop encouraging these two. They're, they're trying to be diplomatically polite, and Graham's even rounding his swearing, and you're you're encouraging them. What's yes, going yes. on? You're right, Sam. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, I'm, I'm out of line there. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> okay, so moving into, and, and we are running long here, I think. Um, I have been listening to a podcast for a number of years. It's um, called Under the Influence by a guy named Terry O'Reilly. Then on this podcast, he discusses advertising and how advertising affects uh, our decisions for purchases. Now, in this particular podcast that I'm talking about, he was talking about um, questions and, and, you know, asking questions and getting answers. And he did an experiment where he typed questions into Google. But what he found was, you know how Google works, it gives you these auto-suggest uh, answers, which are, are suggested through other people that have been searching for the same thing. So in other words, if you go to search how-to, it's going to give you the, the first how-to or the, or the most searched for how-to thing um, on the internet, basically, with some regional adjustments, of course, depending on what you're searching for. Obviously, if you search for food, you're going to get some regional suggestions for restaurants and things. So I thought, well, this is kind of interesting because you can type in things about motorcycles and see what you get. And, and you know, I, I suggested this to you guys before we, we did, recorded this. And I typed in, like, this is just, I did, I, I did a number of them. I thought we should talk about some of the things that people are asking, the questions that they're asking Google. And this, this was, I thought, a great way to start. So I typed what, and then I typed motorcycle, and I stopped at the L. When I got to the L, this is the suggestions that Google gives. Now, these suggestions are from people searching for these real things. So here it is. So the first one is, what motorcycle to buy? What motorcycle to buy? This is this shows the trust they have in Google, the complete faith that Google knows the person that's searching. Now, the next one I thought is priceless. What motorcycle is best for me? Wow. That is, like, think about it. You're asking Google that. What motorcycle is best for me? Well, when you think about it, Google knows more about you than you can possibly imagine, especially if you're using an Android phone. And they know everything you search for on Google. They're following you around all over the, all over your web history and wherever you go. They know a lot more than you think they do. You know, that's a really good point because maybe I'm chuckling at this, but if you really think about it, the creepy part is <laughs> Google, maybe, maybe not now, but somewhere, not probably not too far down the road, Google may know what bike is best for you better than yourself. Because yeah, as you're saying, I mean, a combination of everything, your credit cards, your debit cards, they can tell your spending habits better than you can by aggregating all your data. So, I mean, pretty incredible, but okay. So what motorcycle to buy? What motorcycle is best for me? I think we're going to have to skip that one. But the, the third one on this particular search, and this is just what motorcycle, ending at the L in motorcycle, what motorcycles are good for short riders? I mean, that shows you how many people are searching for that. So does anybody anybody have any comment on that? What, what motorcycles are good for short riders? Honda Shadow? Yeah, I mean, any of the cruisers are good for short riders, but do you want to ride a cruiser? That's the real question. And you have to keep in mind that lots of bikes can be lowered significantly. The F700, 750 series BMWs, 
wow, those things can be lowered a lot. So, I saw one of those the other day in one of the dealerships, and I was thinking, good grief, um, that is really low. Um, yeah. I'm going I'm to see if I can get Birgit to try one of these because, you know, she's only five foot. So this mm-hmm. question is particularly relevant for somebody like her. Yep. Perfect. Well, I suspect the people who've been typing this are short. Yeah. yeah. Just my yeah. observation. Sure. Logic to that, Jim. <laughs> Give them a well, gold I'm star. I wonder if my Google knows that I actually don't ride because I typed in um, why do motorcycle and um, then left it. And the first one that came up is lean into a corner. The second one was wear leather. And the third one was wave to each other. That's really interesting, Shirley, because it just shows that global, uh, Google is global because when I punch those very same things in, those are the results that I got to. Ah, okay. I'll give you different ones. I'll give you different yep. ones. Why do motorcycles think they own the road? why do motorcyclists point to the ground yeah i saw that one come up a lot so so why do why do motorcyclists point to the ground graham oh what what oh what you my question or my answer what do you want your answer i mean why do motorcycles (laughs) point to the ground uh, I don't know. I was Googling why the motorcycles and looking at my answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wave, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, oh, you're... That's, that's yeah. right, Jim. It's a wave. You're that's doing the two fingers down. Someone's misinterpreted that as a, as a point to the ground. It's actually a wave. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like the peace sign dropped down below your handlebar sort of thing. So my one is, why, my second one is why do motorcycles, motorcycle batteries die? And two days ago, I bought a new battery for my motorcycle online. Uh-huh. So why do motorcycle uh-huh. batteries die? Does anybody know? Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't look at the answer, but I just thought, wow. So, it, uh, no, you know, so I bought a battery. And so that's the second thing that comes up. Yeah, well, it's or, or it's just from everybody else searching for it. I mean, motorcycle batteries tend to die because they're left a lot of times, and depending on what climate you're in, but a lot of times they're left all winter. People leave them uh, just in the bike without a tender on them and they get drained down and damaged. I mean, I think that's a, a good explanation for it. Okay. The other one that I had on here that I had to read out was, why do bikers smash mirrors? Oh, uh, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah, I've wow. heard I've heard mention of this. Actually, my my son has mentioned it to me about. I guess I guess he's seen videos or something because he's a rider now and he's he's talked about that. But I didn't realize it was a real thing. The one, two, three, four, five. The seventh one is why do motorcycles have whips? Whips. Yes. What? So that's what? <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, you know what it must be. It must be like antennas on a on a cruiser bike. You know, like you get a Honda, or you get you get like a Goldwing set up with CB antennas on or something. I wonder if that's what it is. Do any of you guys wear leather when you're riding bikes? What's that? Do any of you guys wear leather when you're riding? Yeah, sometimes I do. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Not anymore. So, just from Brian then. I've just, if I'm just going for a day ride and uh, it's a nice day, I'll put on my nice soft leather jacket, which is padded. But, uh, yeah, I, don't, I like it. So, according to Google, you're the only one out of us that is tough and looks cool. Oh, oh did I say I didn't have it? No, now that I think about it. Leather. I, did, I didn't think you were saying leather. <laughs> 
You said thought he was saying feather. I know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's another one. Will my motorcycle? Again, I stopped at the L, and the first one that comes up is, "Will my motorcycle get stolen?" Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Will my motorcycle be okay in the rain? Right. <laughs> I'm gonna say just the answer is just a yeah. It's gonna be fine. After rain and stolen is, will my motorcycle transfer to Florida? Yeah, I see that in mine as well. Now, will my motorcycle endorsement transfer to Florida? So what's the deal there? A lot of people moving to Florida? That's, I, I don't know. Well, and yeah, probably everyone wants to go down there for, for uh, Oh, maybe. Is it Daytona? No, it was ages ago. <laughs> One of the ones that I looked at was, um, why do motorcyclists wear black? Um, mm. And Google comes up with, because black makes us look powerful and independent. Wow. Oh, I thought it was slimming. Yeah. It's the only one that doesn't show the dirt. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's the one. I put in why do motorcycles rather than motorcyclists, and one of them came up as have one light <laughs> or <laughs> rev so high. I saw that one. Or have kill switches or backfire. Hmm. All interesting. The rev so high one. Why do motorcycles rev so high? Well, power. It's all about power. The more times that engine turns around, the more horsepower you've got. It's all about revs. And they have kill switches so that you can spend a long time with a multimeter and taking out spark plugs and generally going over every electrical part of your bike until you find out the bloody kill switch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or push it up and down the road 10 times before you realise a bloody kill switch isn't. It's is always a non motorcyclist who points it out to you. Why is that switch in the off position? <laughs> oh, that's nothing. Is that like important, that switch that's in the off position? <laughs> Why do they have kill switches? Quicker and easier. Because switches be in strange places. Switches used to be down below and all kinds of bad places. And also, don't forget, a lot of bikes didn't have ignition switches at all for a long time. So all they had was a kill switch. Yeah, I think that's where it comes from, doesn't it? It's sort of carryover from there. Is that was the way to shut it off, and it was probably just a convenient spot to put the, put the switch. Or, or, or could it be from the old days, you know, of, um, fuel spilling out of carburetors and things like that, and motorcycles go over on their side? Mm, maybe. Things like that. Yeah. Easier to get than a I key. Was, does every, does well, anyone key. not use their kill switch here? I, I hardly ever use it. Yeah, I hardly you ever switch, use it. You, you guys switch the key off. Yep. Oh, well, I, I never do that until like until I'm actually shutting it. Because the thing is, like, if you're, I mean, if you're writing any technical stuff and you have to kill it fast, the last thing I want to do is take my hand off and be reaching for the key. Oh yeah, that's that's different. But you know, when you're just riding around, I I, I just use the key all the time. Hardly ever touch the kill switch. I use the kill switch or the or the side stand to shut it off. That's normally how I'll shut it off. Graham. I've been using the kill switch a lot more in the last year. I don't remember if you remember, almost exactly a year ago, I was going off to Romania on the on the Tiger, and uh, I got it down the ramp, down onto the uh, outside the house, and then got off it. It was all running everything to close the gate because I was going to be away for a while. When I came back, the bike was laying on its side. <laughs> the house. And um, the reason it was laying on its side because it rolled forward on the side stand. So now I've got into the habit of using the kill switch and then leaving it in gear 
And whenever I'm taking a photograph, whatever I'm doing, because it does have a tendency to roll forward on the side stand and, and fall over. So I've, I've, the last year I've been using the kill switch more than I ever have in all those years prior to that. Yeah, that, that's why I say yeah. I use the side stand because that's how I shut off my bike always is in gear. And I use the side stand to, to, to shut it off a lot of times just to know that the side stand switch is working. I mean, it's just sort of part of the whole thing that I do. Otherwise, it's the, it's the, um, the kill switch itself. I was lucky enough to spend a couple of days with um, Bill Dragoo, who runs a company called Dart. It's an um, adventure motorcycle training company. And um, they were teaching people to, to really focus on using their kill switches so that um, they knew where it was, were comfortable using it when they took a tumble. No, that's um, so true yeah. because I've seen so many times uh, a bike go down where they're fumbling for the ignition switch and you could have mm -hmm. shut it off a long time before that. Yep. Yeah. That's the big reason for a kill switch, of course. Quick shut off and things go pear-shaped. Yeah. 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 I use my kill switch all the time. I come to stop and it's just a flick of the thumb instead of having to take my hand off the bar and go over to the switch to, in order to turn it off. Just kill it now. It's dead. It's done. I can let the clutch out. I can relax. I can put the side stand down without having to worry about issues caused by a running engine. Yeah. It's just so much easier. In my search of why did motorcycle, one of the one of the results down further down is why did Gottlieb da Gottlieb Daimler invented the motorcycle? Does anybody know that? Not offhand. It 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 was it was to do with the engine. It was it was actually designing the engine in a motorcycle. I think was just a convenient thing to put the engine in. Okay, so that was easy. In other words. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another one I did. Why do motorcycle again? Stopping at the L. Something I'm seem to be sticking with why do motorcycle and then the first one that we came back was helmets expire oh yeah yeah they do yeah so why do yep. helmets expire styrofoam dies and fades and the fiberglass or plastic whatever it is does get hardened some yeah, of the the, 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 the outer show goes brittle doesn't uh, yeah, well, it's it's do, and the inner inner foam uh padding um loses its um, elasticity as well. Yep, Even glue, and this is something I didn't know until recently about shoes, the glue used to put these sorts of things together, it, it can uh, it can actually break down just from sitting in heat, which helmets get tons of. Yep, can do. I've had a pair of boots, my last pair of riding boots, which I had for many, many years, the soles literally fell off because the glue failed. Yeah. Yeah, and they say putting it into heat, like putting it close to heat is the worst thing you can do for the shoes because that glue deteriorates. Something to do with the heat, it, it actually breaks down the glue and then they end up doing just what they did to you, falling apart. Yep, yep, same thing with your helmet. It's us a numpty when you're traveling Canada and you've got your boots completely soaked through and they're not waterproof anyway, they're just um, ordinary hiking type boots. And you put them next door to the fire to dry. Oh, mm, that's a classic goodness. one. I love yeah, that. It happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that, I ended up walking as if I was I mincing. The book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, it was all about you know, patience and taking your time. And he put his boots on the window leash to dry in the breeze overnight, and his mate put them by the fire. <laughs> I'm oh. always that from that book. Yeah. This yeah. was one that made me laugh. Why do motorcyclists wear um, chains, uh, have chains on their wallets? And the answer to that was um, to stop us dropping our wallets in bars when we get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so you went, okay. you went the extra step, Sam. You've actually clicked on the question and see what Google's giving you as a first result. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's I, very funny. <laughs> that's good. 
So why, I, I typed in, why does motorcycle, and it comes up with the first one, why does motorcycle exhaust pop, which I think Shirley just mentioned as well. Does anyone know that one? Because we call it backfire. Well, that's, yes. that's backfire. I mean, I, I don't know, popping you hear, you get a lot, even with fuel injected um, bikes nowadays, they, a, lot, a lot of them pop. I, and I think it's because just running so lean. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might be changing the exhaust and not mapping it properly. You know, in the old days, adjusting your carburetor jetting to the exhaust pot you've just put on, so you get a bit of uh, ad additional um, um, fuel into the exhaust pipe system. And when you back it off, it goes bang. Yeah, it actually fires, burns in the exhaust. You can also have a leak in the exhaust pipe and cause it too. Sure, so yeah, and that's that's burning what's left there. Mind you, if it's got a catalytic converter, does that work still? Doesn't the catalytic converter burn it up? It can happen before that. Hmm. The explosion oh. is before the catalytic converter. Okay. Um, not this very well, but there is a thing called a whammy here in um, uh, Australia where uh, people would uh, you go along with your car and turn it off and let mm. the fuel build up and then turn it back on. It makes a big explosion like mm. that. Yeah, oh, you're doing yeah. a ton, right? Yeah, it's not really good for catalytic converters. No, or exhaust of... systems. This is where you find no. your exhaust system laying on the road. Yeah. Does that still work though with fuel injected vehicles? Um, I thought it was more of a carburetor thing because <laughs> as, as, as yeah. long as the engine's turning over, it's sucking fuel. And what, what did you say, Brian? I'll just go and try it. Just hang on. <laughs> I thought Brian was going to say, well, let me just Google that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's much more practical than that. But no, I don't I, think it would work with fuel injection because there's no fuel being no, injected. Yeah, that's what yeah, I thought. Just, yeah, yeah. But I have was, actually seen a car lose its complete exhaust system trying that one. That was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I've seen oh. mufflers blow off from that. Yeah. I was talking about exhausts um, popping. Um, I will never forget Birgit's um, bike having points and condenser problems. Well, actually, it was points problems when we were in Colombia, and that bike started backfiring, and it literally did blow the ends off her exhaust pipes with one of the explosions. Mm -hmm. Also, that's not a place to have backfiring in certain periods of time. The Colombians were a little nervous about sort of loud noises like that. Ooh, quite. I've uh, just got my old KLR running again, and it's uh, it's in the shed right here. And I've got um, an aftermarket Harley muffler on the back, which is very light and, and not very good at muffling. But man, does this thing pop and backfire when I throttle back in a sort of <laughs> obnoxious but sort of cool kind of way. Cool for me, obnoxious for everybody else. But it's, <laughs> got, a it's got a lovely pop to it. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, 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 yeah I do, as a matter of fact. And, and by the way, does your Harley have straight pipes? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do it now. Here we go. That is now the perfect overlanding vehicle. Yep. You'll never, ever have a problem when you go into a town <laughs> because they'll all be waiting for you to arrive. Are the doors closed? Sounds like half a Harley. If he passes out, we'll know what's no, going on. I think on. he's gone. That's it. <laughs> no, that's it. He's, got, he's headed out the door. That's it. Bye, Graham. <laughs> 
You know, <laughs> you idiot. I guess he didn't think about that. You know, like if I start this thing in here, is it going to put exhaust in the room? That, that probably goes back to the same thought process of crossing the river. <laughs> Not thought process. Are you there, Graham? Yeah, yeah. I've just taken the laptop outside so I can breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Right. So that's a first, you know, I mean, on the show. That's that's a first. Genuine exhaust sounds. Mm -hmm. Genuine exhaust sounds. Genuine inhalation of exhaust fumes, and then the oh shit moment where (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) When I built the shed, it would have cost a lot more if I got windows that opened. So the windows. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like you're talking from inside a jar. What have you done? Oh, I'm just outside now. That's all. You mean the computer's still inside and you're outside? <laughs> no, I'm right by it. I think, um, sorry, <laughs> I was like, my throat's a little sore. No, something's wrong. <laughs> he can hear you, but you're very quiet. Oh, sorry. I'll go back in in a minute. No, go back in now. <laughs> Is it because he's not reflecting the sound off the wall when he's out in the great outdoors and the sound's just dissipating into nothing? It could be. <laughs> I'll go back inside. All right. Definitely better. <laughs> Graham, can I ask you a question now? Go on then. Does it seem like it was a good idea to start the KLR while you were in there now? I mean, in hindsight. Not right now, but when I listen back, I think I'll be really pleased. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, there's plenty of fun, as we can see, on Google to be had and plenty of questions to ask and answer. Did anyone come across any others that they want to talk about? Well, I've been motorcycling and it comes up with all those used motorcycles to buy. Oh, I wonder why. Funny, right? Would that have something to do with previous searches? No, no, I don't think so. Here's one. What do motorcycle, and then it comes up with, down the list a bit, but it says, what do motorcycle cops do when it rains? Brian? (laughs) What do they do when it rains? Um, Probably go and have a cup of coffee, a donut. I thought they did that anyway. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I was never a motorcycle cop. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I um, I think what we should do is probably move into plugs at this point, since we're um, quite a ways into our time slot here. So let's fire it off with Brian. What do you have for plugs? Oh, I think I might have plugged this last month, but I'll do it again in relation to this ride that I'm doing, this legacy ride around Australia. I'm really um, wanting people to get on as in Australia to get onto the site called walltowallride.com, and it's the the police legacy ride that um, myself and a, another guy helped create, uh, Mick Corboy from New South Wales. Um, and look, it's all about um, raising awareness and raising money for families that might have lost a loved one um, through their policing duties. You know, just some. Most a lot of people don't like um, what police do, but gee, without them, uh, we'd have uh, complete and utter anarchy out there, and and um, sometimes they lose a loved one, and um, it's a, a bit close to my heart that um, we do this ride to one remember fallen colleagues, and I've lost quite a few fallen colleagues, and um, the legacy branches really look after the families and look after the kids, and just get on the site and have a look. See what you think, and if you feel like giving a little bit of money, that's great. If not, that's okay too. But just understand what they do out there, 
So um, that's what I'll be doing over the next five weeks, just riding around the country promoting that. Walltowallride.com. Yep. Okay, very good. Shirley, what do you have? Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Um, nothing, really. It's like the third month running, Shirley. I know. It's just I'm so, I don't know, boring, dull. Oh, she's supporting me, aren't you, mate? Yes, I am. <laughs> Sam, what have you got? So, well, actually, I don't have a plug, so this makes Shirley feel better. But what I do Thanks, have, Sam. Uh, you're very welcome. <laughs> um, what I do have is um, a big thank you. I just want to thank everybody that's headed in for the presentations and so on and the companies that have booked me to do them and so on. I've had an absolute ball on this trip and mostly that's been down to the people that I've been meeting. I've met some absolutely fascinating people um, and I've stayed with some great people too. Um, there was one guy who's an adventure rider radio raw listener, Dimitri, and um, he got in touch with me because he'd heard uh, me talking about um, the tour. And, um, yeah, arm twisted me electronically. Come and stay. And uh, he and his partner um, put me up for a night. And, yeah, terrific. They showed me a part of the United States that I wouldn't have seen or learnt anything about. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you very much for heading in for the presentations and thank you to everybody who's um, made me feel so welcome um, along the way. It's, um, it's been a lot of fun. Wow. So, Grant, what, do you, what have you got for plugs? Oh, I've got a ton of travelers meetings coming up. This is the, the real big season for us. Uh, we've got uh, Germany summers coming up May 30th. That's going to be an, a fun event. It always is. Jens does an amazing job there. Then the big one, Hub UK, we'll be at that one ourselves. Susan and I will both be there June 13 to 16. That's our biggest event. And the list of presenters for that, is, it's just it's like a couple of screenfuls, just little tiny pictures. It's amazing. So there's all kinds of people there. Where, where is great that one? presentations. That one's at Baskerville Hall. And most of you have read um, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Well, this is the Baskerville Hall that that book is based on. So it's a great old hall. It's beautiful. It's an amazing location. The riding in the area is incredible. We got off-road riding. We got off-road training. There's riding in the, the mountains right behind, like literally right behind the hill, behind the hall. And um, lots going on, all kinds of presentations. So try and get out to that one. It's going to be a good one. I can't believe it's been a year since that last time you said about that. I just said that, man, that went by fast. Yeah, it is. I know. I just felt like I was just there. But uh, we've got lots coming up. We've got some new events this year. We've got Romania. And Romania is, we've opened it up, uh, I think, about six or seven weeks ago. And we've already filled the first building that we had for reservations for uh, accommodation. We're moving into a second building. It's going great guns. We've got Latvia is coming up in September. We haven't opened registration for that yet, but it's coming. And for 2020, we're already planning 2020 events, Newfoundland. And that has raised a lot of interest all over the place. Wow. We've got people planning on doing uh, road trains all the way up from the U.S. to the Newfoundland event. It's going to be fantastic. Beautiful area. Great riding, a place that very few people get to. So that's going to be a good, fun one. So check out the horizonsunlimited.com slash events. I think we have 25 events this year alone. So check it out. There's lots going on. There's something of interest, some event somewhere near you in a long-distance traveler-ish sort of way. There's got to be something somewhere. Yeah, if you're planning a ride for the summer, which you ought to be, then I'm sure you can find one of the uh, the hub meets going on on your route somewhere. 
Oh, yeah. Graham, what do you have? Um, I want to plug uh, a friend of mine called John Hepburn. If you've ever looked at my website, if you've read Different Natures, if you've seen my flyers, my stickers, my T-shirts, he's a graphic designer, website builder, and he's worked for Sam Manicom. He's done work mm-hmm. for Antonio Bolingbroke Ken, uh, several people in the motorcycle world, as, as, as well as uh, infinite stuff, various schools and cricket teams. He builds websites. He maintains websites, which is the important thing because he always knows what up dates to do and keeps them all in order he also never seems to sleep so whatever time zone you're in he's always there on the other end of the email to instantly respond and correct and figure out what you do if you need your flyers designing or any other kind of graphic design he's brilliant he's quick he's efficient he's always there and um his uh, his abilities are spectacular he's also just moved into the t-shirt industry uh, and he's reproduced a picture of a Thruxton R on a T-shirt for me. And it's really, really impressive. It's done so that the colour of the T-shirt goes into the colour of the bike. So you couldn't exactly have a white T-shirt with a black Thruxton on it. It wouldn't work. But it just so it's a really subtle image that blends into the colour of the shirt. Um, anyway, I wanted uh, to give a plug to his abilities. And if you were ever thinking about having a website, if you wanted something managed, if you wanted any graphic designing done, uh, obviously it doesn't matter where you are in the world because it's all done via the internet. And so I wanted to plug my friend and my um, <laughs> and my graphic designer, website builder, John Hepburn. And in the show notes, we'll do a link to his website and you can see a uh, portfolio of his work, what he does. And uh, if you're ever considering having any work like that done, definitely worth getting in touch with him. Oh, I think that's nice. an absolutely amazing plug. Um, very nice idea. Um, John's done some cracking work for me. Um, the audiobook covers, for example, they were all designed um, by John. He's great to work with. And um, just the, the knowledge and the skill of this guy, fantastic. Well, that's great. I, I want to throw in there that if you do have questions for Raw, we'd be happy to get them. And you just drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, click on Raw, and there's a, a form there that you can fill out with your questions and uh, and get them read here on the show. I also want to mention, everybody, we're actually coming up on, on five years for Adventure Rider Radio um, in August. I mean, I, honestly, I cannot believe um, that it's been five years, but we're just weeks away, I think, of, of hitting the five-year mark. So that's kind of cool. And how long have we been doing RAW for? I mean, I think we've been doing RAW for four years, haven't we? We're, in our, we're, we're doing our fourth year? 40th episode, because I was thinking, actually, just recently, I thought, oh, we're going to have a 50th episode coming up around Christmas time. Maybe we should make a special effort, as opposed to just not making an effort. <laughs> <laughs> but Chambers, the man has a way with words, so he does. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think this is the 40th, isn't it, for, for Raw? Right. Right, yeah, I think this is the 40th one. So that's that's pretty cool. It's been a long time, uh, long time doing at it. Anyway, we really appreciate you listening. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I guess that wraps things up, does it? Um, anyone, anything else? Anybody? Anybody going once? Anybody going twice? Well, that wraps it up then. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, guys. See you later. Well, that was amazing. Incredible. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, we're really pleased to have the support of Fresh Tracks. That's freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and my co-host, starting with Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK. He's a world traveler, writer, and author of Overland Books. You can find out more about Sam at sam-manicom.com. Grant Johnson, also a world traveler, lifelong motorcyclist. He's one of the founders of Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for motorcycle overlanders. Drop by and see what they've got going on, including all the events that they put on around the world, horizonsunlimited.com. Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks from Australia, both world travelers, authors of some great books from their adventures. Find out more about them and their escapades at aussiesoverland.com. Graham Field, another world traveler and author of some great motorcycle adventure books. You can find out more about Graham. He, he, by the way, he lives in Bulgaria. He is from the UK. His website is gramfield.co.uk. My name is Jim Martin. I am the host here at Adventure Rider Radio Raw and Adventure Rider Radio. If you don't know about our other show, Adventure Rider Radio, that's sort of our main show, a weekly one. Um, just do a search for it or drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next month. Thank you.